Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Mr. Chief Justice. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Our opinion next turns to the problem of what the judicial role should be. It's all statistical measurement, and statistics never really mean anything. The only thing that actually ever means anything in a human life is what actually happens. Fade to black. An epigraph emerges. Consider God's handiwork. Who can straighten what he hath made crooked? Ecclesiastes 7.13 This is Life of the Law. You are listening to episode 134. A second epigraph. I not only think that we will tamper with Mother Nature, I think Mother wants us to. Willard Galen You are listening to Katie Murphy, who is an audio describer. That's someone who describes films for people who are blind or visually impaired. Fade to a blue background. The opening credits roll with each G, A, T, and C bolded in every name and title. In the background, fingernail clippings and strands of hair fall with a dull thud. Flakes of dead skin drift down like snowflakes, as the title appears. Gattaca. Whenever I talk to someone who is unfamiliar with bioethics or the things we talk about, after I start talking for a few minutes, the first thing that someone says is Gattaca. Osagi Obasaki is a professor of bioethics at UC Berkeley and a regular contributor to our in-studio conversations. He's also on the board of Life of the Law. Osagi organized two screenings of the film Gattaca, followed by panel discussions. I'm Tony Gannon, Life of the Law's senior producer. And I'm associate producer Andrea Hendrickson. He invited us to attend, and we brought our recording equipment. These screenings were put on by the Center for Genetics and Society, as well as the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at UC Berkeley, organizations that Osagi works with. Per their website, the Center for Genetics and Society works to encourage responsible uses and effective governance of human genetic and assisted reproductive technologies. Gattaca, a sci-fi film set in the not-so-distant future, was released just a little over 20 years ago in 1997. Although it was a mainstream movie with a big budget, well-known actors, and was produced by a major studio, it has been used as a teaching tool in the science and bioethics communities since it was released. Let's go back to when this movie was first released in 1997. I was a senior in high school. I distinctly remember writing papers by hand, since my school was just a little behind in terms of the PC revolution that was emerging. $4.59 would have gotten you a movie ticket. And I have a memory of my biology teacher telling students that developments in bioengineering would dwarf 
the digital revolution we were beginning to experience. Mind you, this was before laptops were the norm, before iPhones and iPads, of course. And here's this movie, Gattaca, that was seeing past all of that into the future of bioengineering, biomedicine, and genetic research as a whole. The main character, Vincent, played by Ethan Hawke, was born without the intervention of a geneticist. In the film's universe, he was the product of a dying trend of children who were conceived naturally. I'll never understand what possessed my mother to put her faith in God's hands rather than those of her local geneticist. Meaning everything was left to chance. As societal influence pushed parents to conceive with the aid of genetic technologies, using what we now commonly refer to as assisted reproductive technology, he and others like him were referred to in the film as invalids, while the newly altered majority came to be known as valids. And thanks to the future of genetic research that the movie predicted, everything is known about his biology. Now, only seconds old, the exact time and cause of my death was already known. Neurological condition, 60% probability. Manic depression, 42% probability. Attention deficit disorder, 89% probability. Heart disorder, 99% probability. Early fatal potential. Life expectancy, 30.2 years. years. Vincent's life is predetermined. For all my brave talk, I knew it was just that. No matter how much I trained or how much I studied, the best test score in the world wasn't going to matter unless I had the blood test to go with it. So to change his position in life, he has to assume someone's identity, and most significantly, another person's DNA, that of Jerome Eugene Morrow. The guy's practically going to live forever. He's got an IQ off the register. Better than 2020 in both eyes. In the heart of an ox. He could run through a wall. If he could still run. Since Vincent is perceived as having what some people would consider a genetic anomaly at birth, making him an invalid, this predetermines his position in society, from schools he attends to the type of employment he's able to get. Dissolve to a cleaning crew riding into work. Wearing a custodian's jumpsuit, Vincent looks up through Gattaca's giant skylight, awestruck by a launching ship. I belong to a new underclass, no longer determined by social status or the color of your skin. Welcome to Gattaca, gentlemen. No. We now have discrimination down to a science. All right, there's your cleaner material. Start from the front, clean all the way back. I want to see my smiling face on that floor. His supervisor taps his shoulder. The older white man hands Vincent a bucket of cleaning supplies and leads him to a glass wall. On the roof, the custodians clean the skylight. Gattaca presents a dystopian world where social inequality is baked into the system based on genetic differences. Vincent's one dream in life is to be part of a space mission, but because he's not genetically fit, There's just no chance. Here's Katie Murphy, the audio describer, narrating a flashback to Vincent's childhood. Teenaged Vincent reads Careers in Space. Vincent, 
At the kitchen table, Vincent takes a plate from his mother, but sets it down to keep reading. You have to be realistic. With a heart condition like yours. Mom, there's a chance there's nothing even wrong with my heart. One chance in a hundred. Well, I'll take it, all right? The trouble is they won't. Anton eats heartily. Listen, for God's sake, you gotta understand something. Antonio struggles, looking to his wife for help. The only way that you'll see the inside of a spaceship is if you were cleaning it. Okay, so we're back at the panel now. It's been 20 years since the release of Gattaca. And what you'll see is a framing of the problem in terms of social mobility. That's Professor Troy Dester. He is the director of the Institute for the Study of Social Change and a Chancellor's Professor of Sociology at UC Berkeley. It's extraordinary how little mobility there has been given the ideology of open mobility. So the first night's discussion focused on the implications of a world where your destiny is prescribed to you based on your genetic code. And in the film, there was that, again, that moment where they were saying a 90% chance of this and a 50% chance of that. Well, what gets buried is the very philosophical, even existential question of what risk might be or what chance might be or what prediction is. Rosemary Garland Thompson is a professor of English and bioethics at Emory University. Because it's all statistical measurement and statistics never really mean anything. The only thing that actually ever means anything in a human life is what actually happens. For the genetically superior, Success is easier to attain, but it is by no means guaranteed. After all, there is no gene for fate. At the time, it wasn't a box office hit, but it was and continues to be a critically acclaimed film. And it remains a sort of benchmark of a movie, a sci-fi film referred to in popular culture as having portrayed a viable reality when it comes to genetic engineering. And that reality is now. In 2018, we live in a world where at least one of the scenes is very familiar. The parents of the main character, Vincent, decide to have another child, and this time they rely on the help of their local geneticist. They were determined that their next child would be brought into the world in what has become the natural way. A white woman leads Vincent and his parents into a doctor's office. The black doctor smiles at Vincent. Your extracted eggs, uh, Marie, have been fertilized with Antonio's sperm. After screening, we are left, as you see, with two healthy boys and two very healthy girls. Naturally, no critical predispositions to any of the major inheritable diseases. All that remains is to select the most compatible candidate. First, we may as well decide on gender. The number of IVF procedures in vitro fertilization has been increasing over the past couple of decades. And with IVF, clinics can make the choice of gender available. Have you given it any thought? Uh, we would want Vincent to have a brother, you know, um, to play with. Of course you would. Hello, Vincent. 
As of 2017, as many as 1 million babies in the U.S. alone and 5 million worldwide have been born using assisted reproductive technologies, which includes IVF as well as other fertility treatments and procedures. You have specified hazel eyes, dark hair, and uh, fair skin. I have taken the liberty of eradicating any potentially prejudicial conditions, uh, premature baldness, myopia, alcoholism, and addictive susceptibility, uh, propensity for violence. I think this film is a fascinating conversation about choice because their first child was conceived through what they call the natural way. And as is portrayed in the first 10 minutes of the film, that child had a lot of both real and perceived difficulties. Born with a heart condition, and then with that came certain challenges about whether or not they can be accepted at certain schools, whether this person deemed as a liability, and ultimately that affected the opportunities that he had as an adult. We didn't want, I mean, diseases, yes, but... Uh... Right. We were just wondering if, if it's good to just leave a few things to, to chance. You want to give your child the best possible start. Believe me, we have enough imperfection built in already. Your child doesn't need any additional burdens. When it came to having a second child, the parents did not necessarily feel as if they had a choice. It seemed like they reluctantly went to this fertility clinic because they felt that if they're going to have a second son, that they didn't want that son to have the same hardships as their first son. And keep in mind, this child is still you, simply the best of you. You could conceive naturally a thousand times and never get such a result. That's how my brother, Anton, came into the world. To me, that's a very important conversation to suggest that, you know, even couples that may not want to partake in the technologies of selection may feel compelled to because of how society reacts to children that are conceived without that type of intervention. From an early age, I came to think of myself as others thought of me, chronically ill. Every skinned knee and runny nose was treated as if it were life-threatening. I'm sorry, the insurance won't cover it. If he fell... But I was told that everything was... I really wish there was something I could do. It's a way to get people to think about the idea that technology is not always neutral or beneficial to the society, but can also lead to some bad outcomes. And it's a way to get people to think about, well, some of the things that they're seeing in the news around embryo screening or gene editing are often framed or pitched as things that will improve health or be something that is a net positive to society. So what was happening in 1997 that enabled the filmmakers to see this vision of the future? I think it's really interesting to reflect on where genetic science was when this movie was made. That's Marcy Darnovsky, executive director of the Center for Genetics and Society. So this was happening just in the run-up to the mapping of the human <laughs> genome, which was going to prove that all of us were the same under the skin, and we should no longer think about race as a biological category, and everyone was going to be shown to have certain genetic anomalies. So, you know, it was going to be this really unifying sort of result from the Human Genome Project. But in fact, what we've seen is very different from that. We've seen a revival of the idea that race is a biological category rather than a social one. The context of the film Gattaca was the Human Genome Project. That was a project that was trying to identify all the genes that make up humanity. And with that comes new possibilities, because at that point, you didn't have an understanding or the possibility to then further research which genes are linked to possibly other outcomes, or understand if and where humans differ on a population basis. Really, when you think about it, what is racism and what is ableism except the 
perception that biological categories mean that some people are better than others. The conversation on race and genetics, of course, is a big one. We can only begin to touch on it here, but know that it is a very active conversation. When I asked Asagi about how we think about our conceptions of race and how they relate to genetic traits, he had an answer that took me some time to fully grasp. So, of course, humans differ at a population level, but those population differences do not map on to the racial differences that have come to be meaningful at a social and political level. Meaning that there are differences on a genetic level between different populations, of course, but these differences just don't line up with the distinctions that we make between races. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. My father was right. It didn't matter how much I lied on my resume. My real resume was in my cells. Why should anybody invest all that money to train me when there are a thousand other applicants with a far cleaner profile? Of course, it's illegal to discriminate. Genoism, it's called. But no one takes the law seriously. The Human Genome Project is often cited as being the definitive evidence that there is no biological basis for race, in part because the distinct breaks that we understand as reflecting racial difference don't exist at the genetic level. Now, what this film does is to reintroduce the whole idea that you're born with your destiny. Professor Troy Duster. And the opening, what, five minutes is all about how this family wants to have just a normal child, and then they're told, no, no, you can't have a normal child. You have to have a child with a certain number of attributes. Well, okay, so now we have what's called CRISPR. If you haven't heard of CRISPR yet, it's being written about and talked about with increasing frequency. Currently, there is an ongoing patent dispute over the use of CRISPR-Cas9 to edit genomes. Here's Professor Obasagi again on CRISPR-Cas9. CRISPR-Cas9, as part of a suite of new and emerging technologies that can do a whole lot of different things, but in the particular conversation that we're talking about around um, prenatal trait selection, it is one of several approaches that can allow parents to make choices about the biological composition of their future child. And that is through the increasing ability to identify certain traits that are associated with certain behaviors and outcomes. 
So every time you see something in the news or read something in the newspaper that says the gene for X has been discovered, so the gene for premature baldness, the gene for, you know, there's always a conversation around things such as intelligence. Every time you see that kind of conversation around the discovery of genetic basis for some outcome, that intersects with the conversation about the ability to screen for or edit for or edit in or out that trait during some type of assisted reproductive procedure. CRISPR is a massive milestone in the world of genetics research. Since CRISPR's discovery, there have been an onslaught of companies looking to capitalize on the research. There are a number of research ventures trying to find the genetic basis for a whole host of things. Um, There are, are groups looking at intelligence, there are other groups looking at other traits, musical ability, et cetera, et cetera. Typically, you know, these type of traits involve multiple genes and also have a huge environmental component, so it's hard to say that a gene for intelligence will ever be identified. What is intelligence? Is it the ability to fix a car or is it the ability to write an academic paper? Those are two very different traits. And to say that one is more characteristic of intelligence than another, I think is a very dubious line to draw. This idea that we could use genetic technologies not just to read the human genome, but to rewrite the human genome, and that certain people are going to be able to have access to this technology to make them improved or perfect. Outside, Irene watches a ship launch. Jerome walks slowly behind Irene. They found an eyelash in the south wing. Does it have a name? Just some invalid. He nods, falling into step with her. Jerome? I had you sequenced. I read your profile. I'm sorry. She looks down remorsefully. Seems you're everything they say you are and more. What about you, Irene? You're engineered just like the rest of us. Not quite like the rest of you. Unacceptable likelihood of heart failure. I think that's what the manual says. The only trip I'll take in space is around the sun and the satellite right here. That first night's discussion following the screening really came down to CRISPR and the realms of possibility it opens up in terms of affecting the human germline. A germline is the series of cells containing genetic information that result in the formation of either an egg or sperm cell. So my name is uh, Caitlin Klein. I am an intern for CGS and I'm a student at UC Berkeley studying biology. A big thing that, you know, I'm interested in just making sure that that germline doesn't get edited. So there are two types of interventions. Somatic, which is basically means that you are doing an intervention that simply affects your body, the individual. And then there are germline interventions. Those are interventions to the gametes. A gamete is an egg or sperm cell. One of each need to come together to form a zygote. The zygote then splits up and becomes an embryo. Those interventions will be carried out in all future generations. So not only are you impacting the resulting child, but then that child's children and so on and so on. So that raises just fundamentally different questions because at that point, you're not simply making a decision about one individual. You're making decisions about all future generations and society at large. Germline editing goes beyond genetic assessment. According to Professor Obasagi, it changes the genetic makeup of embryos so that any alterations affect not only the resulting person, but all subsequent generations of people related to the once altered embryo. This is where Osagi and the Center for Genetics and Society draw the line. 
They're fine with limited forms of prenatal and postnatal testing, but believe that germline editing opens up a host of other issues. So right now, Andrea, you and I can have our DNA analyzed through a few companies like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and new companies are springing up left and right, claiming to be able to do things like pair wines to your DNA profile or even DNA matchmaking. In fact, during the panel, Professor Troy Duster asked the audience who had gotten their DNA analyzed. Could I have a show of hands of those who have sent in their sample to some company? Oh, wow. About one in eight people raised their hands. If you get your DNA analyzed by one of these companies, you can make decisions about your health based on the data you get back. It's a burgeoning practice amongst doctors, wellness coaches, dietitians, etc. And a concept we came across in our research was informed consent. If you and I get our DNA analyzed, we would opt into this knowledge and we then have the choice to make decisions about our health. Sounds good, right? But what about the rights of an unborn child? What's this mean for children? So oftentimes we focus on the role and rights of parents, but we often neglect you know, these are future people. These are children who are involved. And at some point, you know, we have to think about and consider the rights of the child. Does a future child have the right to be born without some type of intervention? Cut to Anton and ungainly Vincent running on the beach toward the ocean. By the time we were playing at Blood Brothers, I understood that there was something very different flowing through my veins. And I'd need an awful lot more than a drop if I was going to get anywhere. Anton takes the shell and holds it up to his own thumb, but hesitates before throwing the shell to the sand. They swim into an endless expanse of water. Vincent floats on his back, an expert in not drowning. We allow parents to make decisions on behalf of children all the time. And we allow parents to do that up until they're 18 years old. And sometimes it happens a lot longer afterwards, right? But for the most part, law not only allows, but compels parents to make certain decisions for the benefit of their children. Does that include genetic interventions in terms of this type of ability to make decisions on behalf of children? Or should children be thought of as having the right to be able to be free for what some people say, non-health-related genetic interventions to the extent that they may not be in the children's best interests. That's an open question, right? My name is Elisa Newman. I am a PhD candidate in sociology at UC Santa Barbara. I think that's one of the concerns with the growth of the technologies around genetic testing and screening is that they're kind of always seen as a positive and in the same ways that we see in the movie, like why wouldn't you do this to give your children an advantage? You're almost doing a disservice to not take advantage of these things available to you um, when you're making reproductive decisions. In terms of the commercial power and commercial interest in marketing these technologies and making them more available, I don't see a lot of ways that we're kind of protected or even resisting this future. We're kind of ushering it in and asking the moral questions later. The questions become, do we have a right to be born without someone making decisions about the type of person that we become? The discussion on this night alluded to some heavy topics, among them early 20th century eugenics, so historically, eugenics has taken on at least two forms. So one negative eugenics, that is the weeding out of certain populations that are deemed to not be up to par. So examples of negative eugenics would include genocide or other forms of segregation to keep certain populations away from the populations that are deemed to be more productive, more pure. 
We're curious, Director. An advantage, I should imagine, in your line of work. <laughs> your uh, hiring practices. Our recruitment philosophy. Who do you have to be to be here? Well, naturally, our standard is beyond that of the common citizen. Professionals such as scientists and physicians work closely with the state to determine which types of individuals would be most beneficial to the society or would be most costly. And that type of state intervention has come to define this previous form of eugenics and was characterized in the most horrific iteration, which was the Holocaust. Even amongst your people, you must have varying levels of excellence. Occasionally, we've been forced to accept candidates with minor shortcomings but nothing that would prohibit someone from working in a field such as law enforcement, for example. But now there are enough of the right kind of people to warrant a new measuring stick, bodies with minds to match, essential, as we push out further and further. So you had these interventions where the state kind of identified certain populations that they thought as the ones that we want to promote. These are people we want to reproduce. These are the people we want to be part of our society. And we tended to move away from that, even though certain eugenic practices such as forced sterilizations continued in the United States up until the mid-70s in some places. Professor Obasagi is referring to a 1909 California law that authorized state homes and hospitals to sterilize patients deemed unfit for reproduction. Approximately 20,000 procedures were performed, and the law was repealed in 1979. Links are available on our website. What is often thought of as being a particular conversation around science and inherent ability is often shaped by or informed deeply by the kind of preconceived ideas of racial groups. It was largely racial minorities that were deemed to be unworthy, and therefore there was this kind of scientific conversation about the specific biological characteristics that made them unworthy. I am a student with the Specialist Guild. It's a class for people on the autism spectrum to learn computer science. This is Max, a student that was in the audience for the second screening of Gattaca. I've seen Gattaca before in my um, sophomore year of high school. Well, the film is supposed to be, um, it's a metaphor for discrimination. It's interesting to come back to watch it again, you know, in college with a fresh perspective. I've gotten more into disability activism, considering I've gotten more in touch with my disability, which is autism. The, the, the kind of cure mentality can be more harmful to disabled people than beneficial. Autism specifically cannot be cured because it's with you since birth and the only way to cure it, quote unquote, is to kill the autistic person. In contrast to negative eugenics, positive eugenics can include practices that encourage certain populations with what are perceived to be good traits to reproduce. I just wanted to make a, a quick comment to pick up on the notion of how positive eugenics is sometimes a subterranean feature of our consciousness. And it has to do with the fact that one in six couples, approximately, is infertile. Mm -hmm. And so in that large population of people who would like to have fertility, there is actually a commercial interest in this topic. And there is a stratification system with respect to women's eggs. And you can go online. And you can see that if you're a Princeton graduate, you can command about $30,000 per egg. If you're from a community college, it's no more like fifteen to maybe 12000 And high school graduates don't even get to apply. 
positive eugenics can include, uh, for example, some of the things we saw in the early 20th century where, for example, there were better baby contests and you had public health and social welfare officials going into white communities and teaching them practices about how to maintain clean and hygienic environments, how to make sure to engage in practices that would keep the infant mortality rates down. Inside a crime laboratory at night, medical examiners collect evidence from the mission director's bludgeoned head. On their way out, cops leave their vacuum sample collectors on a stand. Nearby, a genetic analyzer sucks out the collected samples, identifying their origins on a screen overhead. The screen flips through a parade of valid Gattaca employees before stopping on an old ID photo of a bespectacled Vincent, which is labeled invalid and an unauthorized specimen. We had these interventions where the state kind of identified certain populations that they thought as the ones that we want to promote. These are people we want to reproduce. These are the people we want to be part of our society. And making choices to make sure that these folks reproduce are unhealthy and are vibrant and making sure other populations are contained, segregated, and many times killed and excluded. Eugenics as it's being practiced right now is practiced most assiduously, most aggressively in this, what I call the procreative process. But we don't have very many regulations or protocols about doing it, and it is driven primarily through the technology companies, and it's market-driven at this point. So it's the traits that we test for and we look for that are determined by commerce. For those people who are engaged in these newer technologies, such as screening embryos and, and, and practices similar to that, they tend to say that, well, these technologies are, are not eugenic because this is not the state being involved in these practices. Rather, these are individual families making choices about what type of family they want to have. Not every family has the resources to support somebody with disabilities, even though they still might want to have a child. If there are certain disabilities that can be avoided through some type of genetic screening or other type of intervention, that will allow families to be able to form and exist without the additional cost or burden. So the second night of this event, they screened the film again, this time at the San Francisco Public Library in conjunction with the Superfest Disability Film Festival. I think that there's a lot of stereotypes about people with disabilities that we see in media over and over again. This is Dominika Bernardska, a performer, writer, intellectual, and poet. And the idea that like people with visible or significant disabilities are unhappy, depressed, angry, is a very, very common like stereotype. So I think rather than trying to include a different type of disability, I think it was really just a stereotype about this must be what it feels like to be in a wheelchair all the time, and your life must basically just be really empty and lonely because locked away. The screening room had multiple accommodations addressing numerous needs of the disabled. There was a sign language interpreter for the hearing impaired, a person live transcribing the panel, and then there was Katie Murphy, who was live describing the film for the blind and visually impaired. Audio description, I really prefer to see it as an art form rather than sort of this kind of dry endeavor of just saying what is being seeing and then being done with it. I think people really benefit in terms of how they write when they think of audio description as a level of interpretation as well as a level of presentation. 
I first saw Gattaca when it came out 20 years ago, and I was very young and impressionable. And somehow, because of my own disability, I sensed a connection, but I couldn't put my finger on it. So it was kind of fascinating. I knew it spoke to me in some way, but I didn't understand how. I didn't have words for it. It was just a feeling. Catherine Kudlick is a professor of history and director of the Paul Longmore Institute on Disability at San Francisco State University. Essentially, um, it turned the tables so that the people that were perfect were suspect, whereas the people that were imperfect became the heroes of the movie, and they became the, the driving force. that you They had the power in a way. Um, not that they were the ones that changed everything in the movie, but you identified with the people that didn't have power, and you identified with the people that weren't perfect. And so as somebody that grew up in a society that never saw me as perfect and saw me as completely flawed in a way, I totally identified with this character that was flawed, identified with the critique of a society that was trying to rid itself of people who were flawed. It's like, wow, a mainstream movie saying that the flawed people have power and something to give. That's amazing. Vincent? My God, you have changed. Has it been so long you don't recognize your own brother? Are we brothers? Our parents both died thinking they'd outlived you. I had my doubts. What are you doing here, Anton? I should ask you that question. I have a right to be here. You don't. Do you have any idea what it took to get in here? You've gone as far as you can go. You come with me now. Is that the only way you can succeed, is to see me fail? telling you. God, even you are going to tell me what I can and can't do now. In case you haven't noticed, I don't need any rescuing. So Andrea, we were sitting there in the audience and I think we both realized something that we talked about later. What was that? That if the world of Gattaca were to come true, we didn't know who would be there, including ourselves. What are the hidden costs of eliminating imperfection? We don't know. Imperfection serves a purpose. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here. (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, there's something in the universe and there's all sorts of things that were once seen as imperfections and they bring flavor. I mean, would you want to eat that tomato that's perfect? You know, those ones we engineered to within an inch of its life and it's gorgeous tomato that's fantastic and beautiful and then you take a bite into it's like you know they have no flavor no life whatever and you want the one that's got a little bit of gnarliness and a little bit of personality and that's where the flavor is my name's today i'm in sixth grade and this is the first time i've seen ganica and i think that if you are born a certain way it doesn't mean that you have to be like that your whole life it means that like you can change that if you want to and I think that the person should determine that for themselves that's also determining if how they're going to be in the world instead of like if they have a sickness or any of that to make them like the lower caste of the world The tagline of the movie is, there is no gene for the human spirit. So that's supposed to be, you know, celebrating uh, what we saw in the protagonist's storyline. But there's also this other storyline there that I think is this, that it's saying that 
if we allow these technologies to be offered in the world, to be marketed in the world, what we're going to find is that, you know, it, it, it doesn't make any difference what you can do or can't do based on whatever your abilities or disabilities are. What's going to matter is the perception of who you are and whether you are a valid or not. Technologies are being used to create people who have been the product of extreme genetic interventions that can fundamentally shape the way that society exists. The effort needed to have a global conversation on these technologies needs to match previous efforts in things such as, for example, nuclear disarmament and other types of areas where we've had to engage in international treaties or have broad global conversations about the future of humanity because these are topics and technologies that can transform fundamentally who we are. For Life of the Law, I'm Andrea Hendrickson. This episode was produced by Andrea Hendrickson, along with myself, Tony Gannon. Nancy Mullane is our executive producer. Our social media editor is Rachel Kane. We pulled audio from the film Gattaca, testing the limits of fair use. All other music was by Andrea Hendrickson. You guys, this episode took a little longer to produce than normal. Thank you for your patience. We are in the middle of a spring campaign to raise $10,000 to fund existing and future productions. Thanks to some amazing listeners, we have raised $8,200, which means we only need to raise $1,800 more to meet our goal. We hope you'll join others who have made a $100 donation to support episodes like the one you just heard. The campaign is 100 by 100, and we hope you'll support Life of the Law with a $100 donation. Each time we publish a new episode, we send everyone who's subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and news about upcoming episodes. You can subscribe on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We are a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts from Slate. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX Public Radio Exchange. We want to thank Renee Kramer, Adar Avaram, Erica Pearson, Callie Catcott, Heather Thompson, Lila LaHood, Dion Woods, Bill Epling, Kate Robertson, Edmund and Hillary Billings, Kate Germond, Annie Bunting, Shanker Rahman, Malcolm Appleby, Osagi Obasagi, Catherine Catcher, Ben Edwards, Steve Lind, Robert Anthony, Grace Nielsen, Brittany Bottorf, and York University. Special thanks to the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society and the Center for Genetics and Society. Again, go to our website. The support button is on our homepage. Just $100 to help cover the production costs of episodes like the one you just heard. Join us next time when we present an in-studio episode on bioethics. I'm Tony Gannon. Thank you for listening. You don't miss your flight, Vincent. Eyes glassy with tears, Jerome walks slowly toward the other astronauts. After a few steps, he looks back at Dr. Lamar, who gives him an encouraging nod. Placing his hands behind his back, Jerome continues into a rounded corridor. He walks alone, taking a path so many valids have already traveled. Two Gattaca technicians close the metal door behind him. At the condo, the incinerator door opens. Eugene pulls himself inside. Eugene removes his silver medal from his breast pocket and places it around his neck. 
Eugene holds up his medal, taking one last look before pressing a button inside the incinerator. The vessel's boosters ignite, filling the screen with bright orange flames. Jerome serenely opens his eyes to watch yet another launch at Gattaca, this time from the inside. Closing credits. In each name, the letters G, A, T, and C are colored green in contrast with white letters presented on a black background.